Good morning. Just take a moment and have a look at you and welcome you in the name of the Lord. It's good to see you. It's always good to get together and worship and uh, with the church family and uh, welcome any visitors we have with us. So as Howard mentioned, Pastor Brad has been off with Shane and the kids the last couple of weeks and uh, the elders have taken up the preaching role in July. And in our discussions about the preaching role, we put together, I'll call it a series, and it was under the heading of Doctrines for Life. And the thought there is that they would have a practical bent to them. Howard started off with the confession of sin, where he began with the statement, confession of sin is an essential but often overlooked part of our lives. And then Evan last week led off his sermon with, on forgiveness of sin with this, to know God's forgiveness is to live God's forgiveness. So this morning we'll be looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, where my doctrine will be that of the vigorous worker. So just a heads up as we're turning to 1 Peter chapter 1, when we read through this portion, I want you to pay attention to verse 5 particularly, where Peter says this, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. That's the verse that we'll hone on, in on this morning, and the surrounding verses that lead up to it do so by provi providing the grounds that for it and the verses that... Uh, lead out from it, provide the ramifications as well as some of the context. So with that being said, take up your Bibles or your devices and turn with me to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 and we'll be reading verses 1 to 15. So 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
for whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted, that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I always, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray together. So Father, we come now to your word. It is life and light to us. It has been provided by you to reveal your character and your person, your plan of salvation. It's been revealed to us that we might know you better and walk in you and love you. It's been revealed to us that we might know ourselves in our sinful estate and in our glorious estate because of Christ. So, Father, we pray for your blessing now as we come to your word. We do pray for the power of your spirit, his presence, his encouragement, that we do hear your word and understand your word and provide action to your word. So bless our time now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So I'm a Thunder Bay guy now, and because of that, I do like the summer. I like all four seasons, but particularly the summer because I like the warmth and I like the sunshine. And generally, I like the more relaxed schedule that vacation and just time aside provides for us. So we as a family can enjoy a nice evening going to a chill soccer game and enjoying pizza out there. Or we can go to a friend's birthday celebration, postponed from the winter, and enjoy a good evening of fun and food with friends and rejoice in a significant birthday with them. All of that summer provides. There is this thought, though, that I carry around about summer through most of the year, and this thought is this, and it's an idea that I have, and I look forward to it, and it's this. I like to get up early in the morning, and then I like to take my coffee and go out to the back deck, and then I'll sit and ponder. And while I'm sitting, sipping my coffee and pondering life, listen to the sounds that are out there. It's quiet. You can hear the birds. You can watch the clouds. Listen to the wind. And in those few minutes, I just soak it all up in the sunshine and the warmth and reflect on the goodness of God before getting on in the, with my day. But I would say to you that those mornings are few and far between because circumstance, even in the summer, schedule, weather, bugs, more often than not, will rob me of those 10 or 15 minutes from those few minutes of contentment in the early morning. And what's 
Hard in the summer is almost impossible the other 10 months of the year. And here's the reason why. Most of it is a school year, and I'm a parent. And most of my 10 months is taken up with two things. And it's these two things. Stirring and reminding. Every morning, stirring and reminding. In our house, it goes this way. It's seven o'clock. I look at the door. It hasn't opened. There's no signs of life inside that room. So I go to the door and I quietly knock. Sophie, are you awake? And then I listen. If there's still no more no stirring, I'll knock again and eventually it will come to the fact I'll have to poke my head in. And if there's still no more signs of life, I'll have to go and rouse her and poke the little bear and rouse her to consciousness to get her moving. That's the stirring. Then the reminding starts. Did you eat breakfast? Do you have your stuff? You left homework on the table. Remember to put that in your backpack. You got your retainer? Did you make your lunch? Remember, I'm picking you up after school because we have an appointment. And then the final stir and remind. It's 7.45, you better get out the door to, for the bus. And just to change the context a bit, you're familiar with that even in the summertime. I suspect that a number of you were stirring and reminding this morning because it's summer and it's a little more relaxed. And then you realize the service starts at 10.30 and I've got to get out the door to get there. Stirring and reminding. It's a constant in all of our lives. If you're a kid, you know that because you're on the receiving end of it. Your mom's constantly at you. In our house, Linda's the keeper of the schedule. And since half the time I've lost track of what day it is, the stirring and reminded is required and frankly needed. And so she'll get my attention, raise my awareness, and it's followed usually by a call to action or at least attentiveness. And the workplace is no different. There's bosses and there's supervisors and there's schedulers and on it goes. And much of what we do in church life and in the Christian ministry concerns of stirring and reminding. Early on, as a young Christian, my pastor would, re would say to us as a church family that much of preaching consists of these two things stirring and reminding people of what they already know. So as we come to our passage now in 2 Peter, Peter himself is a parent of sorts, and he's looking after the well-being of his spiritual kids. And in this book of 2 Peter, that's what he's doing. He's stirring and reminding. In chapter 3, verse 1, he writes this, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminding. And when you look at this word stir in the scriptures, the meaning here has the idea, as I said, of rousing and awakening someone from sleepiness and, and bringing to them to full awareness. And Peter has no problem in giving them a little spiritual shake to get rid of any spiritual drowsiness that might be remaining. In chapter 113, in our section, he says, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, 
to stir you up by way of reminder. I think this is right, he says. It's consistent with my role as an apostle and a teacher, a mentor and a co-worker and a friend, and is really a continuation of what he's already written to them. But, but Peter has something more immediate on his mind in this second letter that's further motivating him, that's stirring him, if you will. The Lord's revealed to him that his time is short. And so Peter's trying to get in some parting words. And you can't help but notice that there is an energy, a vitality, a punch to his words. He says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, even though you know them and are walking in them. It's right for me while I'm still here to stir you up by way of reminder. And then I will make every effort so that after I'm gone, you'll be able to recall these things. Like any parent, mentor, teacher, friend, he's looking to put his kids in the best spiritual position to succeed going forward, especially knowing that he won't be alongside them to exhort and encourage them. He does this even while acknowledging that they have a faith of equal standing with his, he says in verse one, and that they are established in the truth. In other words, these people are trending in the right direction. And for that, he's glad and he's thankful. Yet, Peter knows that there's external dangers lurking, threatening to undo them. They remain as strangers and aliens, as he called them in the first letter. They're still believers scattered throughout Asia Minor, seeking to live in the midst of a pagan and a hostile society that brings ongoing testing and trial to the genuineness of their faith. In addition, he points out in this letter that there's further opposition from scoffers and mockers and false teachers. Doubt is being cast by these evil ones with regard to the Lord's return and thus seeking to undermine their stability and their steadfastness. And so in chapter three, verse 18, he tells them, the Lord is coming in his own timing. He will deal with them. And so his final words to them in this letter are these. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent. And that word diligent is the same root in verse five, which we'll be looking at, which means bring effort bring work. So be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And then in verse 18, he says, but grow in grace and knowledge in our Lord, in our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now and to the day of eternity. So this is the purpose. This is the goal of his stirring their ongoing diligence, their ongoing workmanship, and growth in Christ. 
That's what he wants his folks to continue to attend to. Diligence in their godliness or in the way they live their lives and growth in their faith. Peter's well aware that these folks are holding firm in their identity in Christ and that they are demonstrating it consistently in the way that they're living. That is their activity. Still, as he's preparing to leave them, he's reminding them not to take their foot off the accelerator of their faith. And he puts it to the fo- his folks this way at the end of the letter. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? I think Peter understands how easy it is, easily walking or living in a manner worthy of Christ slips through our practical consciousness as we move through life. That's why I think Peter is so excited about reminding them and us one more time. And I think perhaps that there are additional dangers for us this morning in our faith and our walk because we're really in a different situation in a lot of ways in our faith, certainly in comparison to those first century believers. Thomas Case, who's a Puritan writer, puts it this way. In affliction, God makes himself known to his people. In the word we hear of God, but in affliction we see him. Prosperity is the nurse of atheism, he writes. When we're prosperous, the sense of God is little by little defaced. In affliction, the soul is freed from the attractive power of worldly allurements, and our thoughts are more serious, clear, and capable of divine illumination. Comfort, ease, complacency, distraction can all serve to erode our faith and our walk in Christ so that we are in effect becoming practical atheists. In thinking of this more, a writer called Reuben Shelley writes this, practical atheism is holding an intellectual commitment to the belief in God, but thinking and behaving as if there were no God. And another writer puts it this way, talking about the, uh, the problem of atheism. He says, the problem isn't atheism. The problem, he says, is practical atheism. It's not that people do not believe in God. It's that they live as if God is largely irrelevant. That's what secularism sorry, does to us. It doesn't disprove our faith. It just dismisses it. It makes our faith an issue of personal and private belief disconnected from the outside world. So thinking on these things then, and having said that, I want to return to the point that Peter is making. What type of followers are we to be? And as followers of Christ, what should our lives look like and be like? And this morning, we want to look to the, the manner of our living, the way we're to get after it, if I, will, if I could say it that way. What are the characteristics of holiness 
and godliness in our lives that Peter describes to us? Or I'll just put it in a simple question format. What are the identifying marks for a godly life? That's the question for us. So we'll look more, more closely at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, under three headings. A godly life is marked by effort. Two, a godly life is marked by faith that culminates in love. And third, a godly life is marked by progress. So Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Or we could restate it this way. Because of Jesus Christ and what he has done, labor and work vigorously to supplement your faith. In these few words, Peter comes to the main intention of this section and perhaps even the letter. And it's to excite and engage his believers, his friends, to work and labor, to expend themselves, to advance their faith in grace and holiness. Perhaps this rings a little odd at first inspection, but the idea of placing work alongside faith is not foreign to Scripture. Peter Wright wrote in the first letter, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, fight the good fight of faith. Jesus himself says in Luke 13, 24, strive, labor fervently, work hard, to enter through the narrow door. And in chapter 6, 27 of John, he writes, do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. And James points it more pointedly, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then in chapter two of James, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Or a chapter later, he says, is useless. Further, Peter, the reason Peter can say that they labor in their faith is because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Peter refers to him in verse one of our, of our reading as our God and our Savior, and we shouldn't let that fly by us. Realize grammatically that this reference is a single person of Christ. So the reason we're viewed by God as righteous, sinful though we may be, is because of Jesus' sacrificial death, the shedding of his blood on our behalf, 
And this justification is a free and a gracious gift of God to the, all those who receive it by faith. That's why Peter writes to them as those who have obtained their faith. They've been given it, they have received it. Or as Paul would say it in 2 Corinthians, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you're unfamiliar, that's the gospel. That's the good news. But there's more. Not only do we have this positional righteousness because of Christ, in addition, he enables us to work this out practically. Now that we are born again, that we are participants in it, we can make every effort to flow with the power of God. And so in verses three and four, he writes this, his, Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things in life that pertain to life and godliness. And then specifically, he says three things. He has called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, Christ has provided for us a model and an example. And then he said, he has given us his good and his precious promises. In other words, he's given us his word and his instruction to guide us. And then in verse four, he says, so that we might become partakers, sharers, participants in this new nature. Or simply as one commentary puts it, because of the new birth and the promises associated with it, Christians can participate in the divine nature. But the new birth does not rule out human activity. This is the process of what we would call sanctification. And in a systematics book that I have, an older one, guy by the name of Burkhoff is helpful in this when he writes this, sanctification is the supernatural work of God in which believers cooperate. When it is said that man takes part in, the, in sanctification, this doesn't mean that man's an independent agent in the work so as to make it partly the work of God and partly the work of man. No, it reflects it says that God affects the work in part through his, the instrumentality of man as a rational being by requiring of him prayerful and intelligent cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Or we could just simply say it like Paul says it in Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, similar circumstance to Peter. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then in the next verse, he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in verse five, Peter comes and says to us, make every effort. 
And we could easily miss it because the ESV has this as, for this very reason, make every effort. And it's the word make that draws our attention. Because the NASV, a couple of different translations, older ones, similarly have this as apply, applying or giving all effort in the word. However, the little word make here literally means to, to bear alongside. And so the couple of versions, the ASV and the Y, uh, the literal version have it this, for this very cause, adding on your part all diligence in your faith supply. Or, and this thing, for this reason also, all diligent having brought beside. So clearly this means that this is more than let's just give this a try and see what happens. The word here for work or for diligence means careful persistence and sincerity and urgency. And the dictionary definition of effort means a vigorous and a determined attempt. I like the thought of a vigorous effort because it not only captures the idea of effort, of just leaning into it, but it also carries the sense of the energy and the enthusiasm and the engagement of the work. The Puritan writer Ezekiel Hopkins provides an example of workmanship in this regard. And he uses, the, he uses angels as the example, and we can glean some insight from his words. Because after all, they are workers, and they stand ready in the very presence of God. So if you went and looked at Psalm 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. And Hopkins cites Hebrews 1.14, where he says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for those who are to inherit salvation? So Hopkins' point on workmanship, on angels, but I think is applicable to the way we're to approach this, is that they're never remiss in their service or slack in their attendance. They continually bless and praise and stand ready to receive and execute his commands. Their obedience is cheerful. It's their delight and not as a burden, as if being dragged into it. They do God's will with zeal. There's no coldness or indifference in them. They do God's bidding quickly. There's no dispute or distraction. They do the will of God with constancy and perseverance. They never weary in their work. And at the end of it, Hopkins simply asks this question, do we obey God with the same joy, zeal, speed, and perseverance? Is it our delight to work as the heavenly spirits work to do in the service of Christ? Another Puritan, William Grinnell, puts it this way, he that does not offer up his best robs God of his due, for he is a great God. And I would just add to that, God's given to us of his best, 
can we give any less in our efforts? So now we come to the point of where our effort is to be directed. So we know we're to be vigorous, we're to be diligent, we're to be engaged and enthusiastic, but where is that effort directed? And to that he, he says, we are to supplement our faith. That's how we participate here. Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith. And the meaning here of supplement in the King James or supply in the New American Standards means to provide, furnish, or support. And it implies the idea of sparing no expense. And thus, it means um, even lavishly furnish what is needed. So Peter's instructed us to be full-on engaged and to provide or add to our faith a complement of Christian graces, which we'll be looking at in a moment. So Peter's calling for an urgent, uh, an urgent active Christianity. It's by faith alone that we're saved through grace, but the safe, saving faith does not continue on by itself. Faith is not the end of the journey. It's just the first step. Faith is not a box to be checked as if, okay, been there, done that, I've taken care of this part of my life, now I can move on with other things. Faith is worked out in the course of the fullness of your life. And so Peter then begins to string together eight virtues or qualities, as he says, that begin with faith and end at love. That's where we come to the second point. A godly life is marked by faith that culminates in love. Or if you looked at what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So quickly then, let's look at these qualities. He says, add to your faith virtue. This is the quality by which a person stands out as morally good or excellent in terms of their standards and their behavior. The word's interesting because classically it means a God-given power to perform heroic deeds. Think of valor or courage that are demonstrated over and over. And that I just thought of the little Sunday school song, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. And so here, this is the qualities of a good, morally excellent person that stands out over and against the world. And to virtue, add knowledge. Knowledge, discernment, understanding. We cannot approve what is good and acceptable and perfect of God until we know him both in terms of his person and in terms of faith and life. This knowledge informs our thinking and our deeds. And so we add to knowledge, add to verse, sorry, add to knowledge self-control or temperance, as the King James literally puts it. And the word temperance or self-control 
means literally to hold oneself in. Matthew Henry puts it this way, we must be sober and moderate in our love for and our use of things in this life. And if we have a right understanding, knowledge, we will see their worth and usefulness are vastly inferior to spiritual mercies. And to self-control, steadfastness. This is the cheerful and the hopeful patience, endurance that we have, especially in times of trial and difficulty. James puts it this way, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And to steadfastness, godliness. To this we add godliness or holiness, which is the very thing produced by suffering and trial. Simply we will look like, be like, act like, more like Christ. Or as the scriptures say, you shall be holy because I am holy. And then to godliness, brotherly affection. This is the, a warmth, a tenderness, an affection for our family. We are children of the same father, members of the same family, servants of the same master, travelers in the same country, heirs in the, of the same inheritance, those in whom we take a particular delight. And this brotherly affection is most characterized by what we're doing this morning, which is having fellowship one with another. And finally, to brotherly affection, add love. And here we arrive at one, co at one commentary calls the queen of all virtues. It is the agape love, most often referenced in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the self-sacrificing action on behalf of others. It is the love that flows from God who himself is love. 1 John chapter 4, 7 and 8. And that reaches into the world. John 3:16 or 1 John 3:16. By this we know love that he who laid down his life for us and we ought to know we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So that's the list and it's important to emphasize that we are laboring to possess all of these attributes. An engaged worker working along the, alongside the Lord would not be satisfied with having some of these qualities, nor would he be satisfied with having all of them some of the time. Now, Peter's asserting that we are to be in full possession of all these qualities and that they are to be increasing. And that, as the King James would put it, that they are to abound. And that brings us to the third point, which is a godly life is marked by progress. Again, Peter says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, so 
If we look again at this list with a view to enhancing our faith, we could ask some questions. Thinking of virtue. We could ask ourselves, how am I trending in terms of goodness? Do I find that my thoughts, my decisions, and my conduct look less and less by those of the world around me and are more in aligned with Christ? In thinking of knowledge, do I find myself spending more time in the word, in prayer, seeking to further my knowledge of God and myself? How am I filling in my spiritual well in terms of my devotions or my supplemental reading or my podcasts? Am I, try, am I seeking to build up that knowledge in God? And then in terms of self-control, do I find that I'm gaining more control over my behavior, of my wants, of my desires, with respect to, say, finances and money, food, sexual liberty, the use of media, or steadfastness? Am I patient? Do I find myself less prone to anger and outburst? Do I find myself more confident and steady in Christ in the midst of uncertainty? Godliness, do you find yourself surprised by grace? By doing some of the things that would remind you of the way Christ would do it? Then to brotherly affection. Is there a growing fondness and affection for your church family, for your siblings, for your parents, to those close to you? This can be a tough one. Our family knows us, we know them. Is there growth in you in seeing others as Christ sees them? Wanting to be less critical and more encouraging? wanting to be more joyful and being less easily offended? Do I find that I'm more engaged, the intention of being more engaged with others and less cold and indifferent? And then to love. Am I genuinely moving to love God with all my heart, strength, soul, and mind? Do I find that I'm sacrificing sacrificially loving my neighbor as, my, as myself? Am I giving my time and my energy in the service of God and others? And so in all of these things, when we ask them, and this would make a good prayer list if you're lacking for content in your prayer life, this is a good prayer list for yourself and in thinking about friends and family, Church family, a good prayer list as you're praying through, say, our directory to bring before the Lord on behalf of others. In all these things, we want to be trending more and more in the right direction. And the right direction is Christ. Kevin DeYoung had a good point on this when he says, where you're at today doesn't matter as much as where you're headed. 
It's not so much your current position, but your trajectory. So how are you trending? And I certainly don't want you to be discouraged by this. I want you to be encouraged because we could all look at a point in the graph at a certain point and be encouraged by it or discouraged by it. But we need to pull back from that. We need to look at the one-day trend and then the five-day trend and then the one-month trend and then the one-year trend and then our life trend and say, are we trending more and more towards Christ? In thinking about this, I, I was thinking just prior to the pandemic, COVID, it was the fall of 2019 in our church family and we engaged in a little project as a church family called Course of Your Life. Some of you might've been here for that. And essentially it laid out a timeline kind of, of eventful places in life of faith. And the whole idea is, this is the beginning of faith, and over here is Christ. And all along this line, we want to be trending closer and closer to Christ. And perhaps you even remember the four E's. Way over here at the beginning of faith, where it says, where we first became engaged with Christ. I'm not sure how you were introduced to Christ. You may have come to church and just sat in a sermon. You may have been introduced to him at Bible camp or, or heard a verse or encountered another believer. But that's the point of engagement and the point of interest begins to germinate. And the second event is being evangelized. Someone along the way invited you to Christ to encourage you to look at him and to see what he's all about and to bring you to him. And so he had that invitation. And then right in the middle, there was this transformative stage where you crossed over from death to life, from darkness to light, where you accepted Christ and you came to him and you said, I will trust and believe in you and have faith in you all the days of my life. And so that began the third stage, which was being established, of being grounded and rooted in Christ. And when you look at these faith and you look at these seven or eight characteristics or virtues, you can think of them as little flowers in the garden of your faith, little foundational plants in your faith that you are called to cultivate and encourage to grow and to have them sink their roots deeply into the soil that is Christ. That's what being established is. And so faith, when we look at it, can be clearly seen in these eight or nine things. And that's what we wanna be doing for people who are, have come to Christ, want to establish them firmly, and the, the, last, the last E, if I can put it for this way, is being equipped, is ministering in Christ. So you can think of your little foundational plot of godly attributes and then taking it out to the wider vineyard to service and to minister. And what's the point of all of that? 
The point of all of that is to take what God has equipped you with and go back to the beginning and start engaging people and evangelizing people and establishing people and equipping people in Christ. And the whole point of that is to draw closer to Christ yourself. It shouldn't escape our notice that verse eight is a conditional statement. There is an if and there is a then. If you have these qualities, if you have them and they are increasing, then four things. You will be fruitful and effective in your knowledge of Christ. Think of it. You'll be fruitful and effective. Perhaps this morning you're not feeling fruitful and effective. You're not sensing the power of the Spirit or the fruit of your Spirit in life. Perhaps it's time to revisit these qualities and double down on your efforts in them. If you have these qualities and they are increasing, he says, number two, you will be kept from spiritual myopia and blindness that can neither recall that Christ has purged you from your sins, nor see clearly ahead to what Christ has for you. I can't imagine a worse place to be than in the midst of life and not having a sense that Christ has given his life for me, has laid down his life for me. But I would confess to you, there are times when I am spiritually, I'm so into myself that I've forgotten all that Christ has done for me and established me in this place. And nor can I see ahead to the glory that he has for me Working your faith in these attributes will keep you from that kind of blindness. If you have these qualities and they are increasing, you will confirm your calling and election and you will not fall. If you're experiencing doubt or unsurety, I would just urge you to revisit these qualities, revisit Christ and faith and the qualities that he's calling us to. And then lastly, he says, if you have these qualities and they are increasing, you will triumphantly enter into the everlasting kingdom. So think of it. I can't think of any better two words to hear at the end of my life than well done good and faithful servant. So just I'm closing that, a little note to the church family. I'm looking at the makeup of our church family. I'm excited about what's going on. There's a big influx of new folks. We're trending younger. That's always a good thing. God in his kindness has, in his grace and his mercy, has brought a number of folks to salvation and gladdened our hearts through your baptism and your testimonies. There's people who have come into membership here and we've enjoyed your joy and your energy and your enthusiasm. And if you're newer in the faith and you're kind of at that early stages, let me offer an encouragement to you. You've made a good beginning. You've made a good start. 
And I want to encourage you to establish Christ, establish good work habits, establish good qualities into your life. Set a godly pattern now that you will endeavor endeavor to live, live out in the midst of all your days so that you would maintain them and increase them to God's glory. Many of you have labored long. Some of you are in the midst of busy seasons. I remember when you were new to the faith. I remember having you in my Sunday school class and now you have families and you're ministering in the midst of us. But it is a busy season and there's family and there's career and there's relationships and so on and so on it goes. But let me encourage you, continue to make every effort in regard to your faith. The busyness and the stuff and the amusements of this world will seek to distract and put to sleep the godly qualities God is calling us to. So be diligent, be zealous, be an engaged worker in Christ. Stay on track. And lastly, to my friends in my age bracket, perhaps you're retired. Perhaps you're just tired. My encouragement to you is don't go weary in well-doing. Finish well. Finish strong. To myself, I have to say it this way. Shake off the rust of slothfulness. It's there. Shake off inactivity. Shake off the attitude that we'll let the younger folks do it. Like Peter, we need to be in there stirring and encouraging our church family with love and good deeds. And if I can put it this way, I'll take it incorrectly, in in the best way, we need to be, how do I say this delicately? We need to die with our spiritual work boots on. We need to go out as workers in this. Finally, let me lead, I'll just finish with this. When I came to Thunder Bay in 1990, as part of a job transfer, Linda and I came. Part of my job was to go out and visit mills in the area, in the region. And in one particular mill, I I encountered this guy named Duff. That should have been a warning right there. But that guy had a big impression on me. Over the course of many years, I worked with this guy and I worked around him and with him and my visits were regular and often, and he was typically assigned to me. Duff was a younger guy, but he was full, but he was a full journeyman electrician. That is, he was trained in terms of his schooling, he was certified by examination and apprenticeship, So he was fully qualified. And it was the weirdest thing working with this guy because as he would work, he would always be saying three words. I'm a worker. Out of nowhere, I'm a worker. 
And so that got me interest, so I watched him as he worked. In the midst of planning or laying out a job, he would exclaim, I'm a worker. And then he would begin to work and he would start to wire up and mount equipment and his, wor his workmanship was just tremendous. And he'd complete that work and he would say, and again to no one in particular, more to himself, I'm a worker. And then I would give him new challenges. Technology was changing, we were growing, having to learn new things and he would embrace them and he would take on these challenges and learn and take on the opportunities. And all of this, there was in Duff this consistency and this focus and this effort and this attention to detail. I'm a worker. He took a pride in his work. And again, more often than not, it was no one to no one in particular, but sometimes when I would ask him a question like, is this gonna take long? Or what are we doing? He would just simply look at him and look at me and say, I'm a worker. And I would know. I'm a worker, as if to say, this is what I am. This is what I do. This is how I finish. So friends, as we close, you've been certified. You've been qualified. You've been trained as disciples of Christ. You've been set aside for love and good deeds by Christ. So the question is, are you a worker? Every morning, get up and stir yourself and remind yourself, I have obtained a faith by the righteousness of my God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every morning, remember, he has given me everything, everything for life and godliness. And then go and make every effort to build your faith in him because you're determined. And then you can say, I'm a worker. Let's pray. From beginning to enter, to um, exit, to end, it is Christ. Thank you, Father, that he is our life through his righteousness and our light in our lives. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.